Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome in. We are uh, continuing through the book of Revelation. And if you don't know why we're in Revelation, go back a few episodes. We talked about why we're jumping ahead and we're just going to, we're going to hang out here for a while. And this is a good book to do that in. It's a, it's such a misunderstood book, mm-hmm. uh, but, and this is Rob's expertise. So we, we figured it'd be good to come here a while, but we want, we want this to be like a Bible study. We want you to study along with us. And so don't just listen, but make sure that you're also scrolling up in the podcast app that you're in and look at the show notes. Uh, oftentimes we'll include outlines or notes that you could follow along with. And then we also have some recommended reading uh, for relevant passages each week. So, you know, Revelation 1 is the thing that we're obviously going to start with. We're doing some background, but that's that's where you could get uh, a head start there. So we also want to recommend some other resources that you can study for uh, some more information. So Rob, he's writing a seven-week, uh, five-day-a-week devotional guide that's posted on DeterminedTruth.com, which is his website. So you can work through the uh, text of Revelation there. And, and Rob also has a series of uh, studies on his YouTube page uh, that you could find at Rob Dalrymple. So go ahead and check those out on YouTube. And so I know that we all want to jump into the text. Uh, a few more things that we want to address real quick, though. I haven't even let Rob speak yet. So this is what happens. I, this is a hostile takeover of the podcast. Um, but, Thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it. There the you go. Rob, you're awesome. here. Huh? It's a great, episode, a great <laughs> yeah. episode. I really hope you got a lot out of it. Thank you. It's so good. Hey, you're cutting into my you intro. Today, Have a good night. <laughs> so good. People are just hitting that fast forward button. Yeah. Uh, what? Right what? There. I missed the whole thing? What? E- exactly. Yeah. So I know that we all want to jump into the text and just, you know, which is what we've done in all the other episodes. We we get into the text, but we do have a few more questions that we might want to address and kind of lay the, the groundwork. Uh, and so that's why we're not rushing this, right, Rob? Is that is that the plan? Yeah. Yeah. I like to jump right into the text of the book of Revelation and kind of quote unquote, let Revelation speak for itself. Obviously let what I think the text is saying speak for itself. And the reason why I like doing that Vinny is because there's so many questions that people come into the, into a study like this with loaded convictions about. And if we do an introduction on it and say, what's your view of the millennium? Well, let me tell you the different views of the millennium. There's two things that happen with that. Number one is you get so bogged down in all these introductory issues uh, that people forget, it, they get kind of get convoluted in their mind. They get lost. I don't understand what's going on. And before you even get it in the text. So let's just mm-hmm. talk about the text and let's learn what, learn what it says. The second thing that happens is some of these questions are like litmus tests for people where like, if you don't give the answer that I want, I'm tuning you out the rest of the, what you have to say. Yep. And the problem with that is I think the text of Revelation has a really significant message. So even if we disagree on who the 144,000 are or what the millennium might mean or when it's going to happen. The reality is there's a message that to the church that we're all going to agree on. And I want you to hear that and agree. So that's kind of why I choose to prefer. I prefer to do it that way, but I think we're actually doing a good service here. I think the questions that you're asking and that we have here today in the last five or six weeks and the next couple of weeks are actually pretty important questions. Yeah. And so you just threw out a couple of the, the hot, you know, sexy theological things that come from Revelation, which is like 144,000 in the millennium or something like that. But if if we wanted to say, hey, you know, keep this sort of thing in mind when you're reading the book of Revelation, what would you start with? How do you encourage folks? Well, so chapter one, I think it's chapter one of my book, Father Lamb says it's about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And the reality is we can all agree on who Jesus is and Revelation's portrayal of Jesus is awesome. 
But the first three words in the Greek text, it's four words in English, translate as the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we can get beyond all the hype and the hysteria about the book of Revelation and what is it talking about something future and what does it mean for us and all that good stuff. And is it the EU or is it the the rapture? But the reality is, let's start here. The text is about Jesus. Now, the Greek and English can be a little bit ambiguous here. When it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, does that mean it's the revelation about Jesus? It's of Jesus. But it can also mean in Greek or in English. It's the revelation from Jesus. I know it's Jesus's revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus. It's his. And the answer is, it's probably true for both. And a lot of scholars are thinking that John was intentionally ambiguous mm-hmm. in English and, and obviously in Greek. Um, and the, the reality is, look, it's Jesus is the world's true Lord. Now, if I can interject, interject one thing here, the very first episode that we did of this series here that we're kind of restarting up on the book of Revelation, you asked me a question about Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, where it says uh, the things that will soon take place. And Mm -hmm. what does John mean by that? And I realized that I left something off that answer. So if you don't mind, I know this is repeat. A lot of this is repeat, but I'm going to try to go a little slower from what we did uh, uh, week one of this uh, series. But let me kind of see if I can explain what I I think is happening here and I think why it's so important here. And it goes back to the question of who, uh, the fact that it's about Jesus Christ. So in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, it says, God gave to John about what must soon take place. And the question, that question's been, what does soon mean and what does it mean by soon take place? Well, some think, well, if it meant something that would soon take place in the first century, then obviously John's wrong because it hasn't happened yet. Uh, and that understanding usually assumes that, well, it's about the, about the end. And since the end hasn't happened yet, it couldn't mean what must soon take place beginning with the time of the New Testament or the time of Jesus. And so some say, oh, well, it refers to some future period of time. And that when that future period of time begins, then it will all happen soon. And I think actually they're both wrong. So what I discussed with us back in chapter, back in episode number one of this series was John's quote in the book of Daniel. And I kind of give Vinny some notes that I probably, I may not even put in the show notes. I gave you some Greek there as well, Vinny. But in Daniel chapter two, and if you have your Bibles, I'll I'll put these in the show notes, the the verses in Daniel two. It's Daniel 2.28. Daniel 2.29, and Daniel 2.45. So in Daniel 2.28, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision, and a dream, and he tells all the the wise guys, hey, listen, guys, I want you to tell me what the dream was and what its interpretation is. Like, we can't do that. You tell us the dream, O king, and we'll tell you its interpretation. They're like, sorry, if you don't, the king says, I'm sorry, if you don't tell me what the dream was and its interpretation, you're all dead. Well, one of those people that would be dead would be Daniel. So like, hey, let's go to Daniel and see if he can help us out right now. So they go to Daniel and Daniel's like, no problem, I'll take care of it. He goes to the king and he says, oh, hey, king, here's your dream and here's this interpretation. So in verse 28, he says, however, uh, oh, king, there is a God in heaven. This is Daniel 28. I think this is a new American standard. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. Then in verse 29, he kind of repeats himself. As for you, O king, while you are on your bed, your thoughts turn to what will take place in the future. So notice that the phrase, what will take place, and I gave you the Greek version of, of it, uh, Dan, there, uh, Vinny, in, in, mm-hmm. in your notes. And you notice it's slightly different there. Obviously, the day, uh, genestai, uh, is what must take place, um, but hasa and, and ha are, are a little bit different. And then epi eschaton, which means uh, in the last days, are basically the same in Daniel 2, 29, uh, 28 and 29, even though it's translated slightly differently uh, in our English Bibles. And I gave you a translation up above 
basically what must happen in the last days and what must happen in the last days, although the word what is different in Dan 2.28 and 2.29 in the Greek text. And John's reading the Greek text, most likely. So uh, other than that, the phrases are identical in the Greek text. Then in Dan chapter 2, verse 45, which is kind of the, the end of the interpretation of the passage, Daniel says this. He says, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So now we have a little bit different because it says, and I, I translate it as the things which will be in the last days, which again, the New American Standard says what will take place in the future. All right, so you can see, Vinny, that in the, in the Greek, the beginning of the phrase is a little bit different, but ep eschaton in the last, uh, ton hemaron, which is in the last day. Again, the end of the phrases are identical. It's just the beginning that are slightly different there. So what you'll notice is that John in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, also very similar in 1 verse 19, 4 verse 1, 22 verse 6, but what's most important is 1 verse 1 at this point in time. John basically is identical with 2.28, although he, said, although he changes the end. So the beginning and the middle of Daniel 2.28 and Revelation 1.1 are actually identical hmm. in the Greek. What's different is that he took in the last days and he translated it as soon or entoxi, which could mean quickly. So it's pretty apparent that John's quoting Daniel, and he does something something in 119, in 4.1, and in 22, verse 16. And again, the, the beginning is almost identical in all, in all four of those, a slight difference in 119, but the middle, the middle term is the same uh, in all of them. And so you can see John's, John's reading Daniel, but he's changed the end. And the end in Daniel was in the last days, in the last days, or in the last days. Right, that's a, a wooden translation just to show you that they're consistent in the book of Daniel and the Greek text of Daniel. But which for John is, uh, must happen quickly or in verse 119, uh, after these things or in verse four, verse, chapter four, verse one, after these things. And in 22, verse 16, it says, what must happen quickly or soon? So it's that soon. Now here's the key and that's this. Our, so that, that's the first thing I point out was that the soon has to do with John's understanding of Daniel and what John's doing is taking what was in the future for Daniel, something in the last days for Daniel, saying it's actually going to happen soon, meaning um, it's it's happening in the now. Mm -hmm. But I didn't, I don't think I explained clearly enough. And I kind of re-listened to the episode. I'm like, ah, I probably should clarify that. So the reality is that the word soon, the word soon means something that will happen or that will occur, quote, within a brief time after something else. That's the, in other words, it happens quickly after this. So the question is, well, what's the this? There's something that happens first, and then this happens soon after that. And that's the key question. What is the this or the mm -hmm. something that must happen that in John's mind, what he's describing happens soon afterwards? And my answer is, and I'll see if I can defend this, is that the something that must happen first is Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. That is the key that took what was going to be in the last days for Daniel and made it in the present for John. In other words, for John, Jesus's coming changes the game. And we could talk about, for example, the book of Daniel ends with a scroll being sealed up because it's going to be sealed up until the last days. And of course, the book of Revelation has a scroll that's being opened. What was in Daniel was sealed up because it's something for the future, something for the last days. But in John, it's something that's being revealed. And the question is, what happened that this is going to happen soon afterwards. Afterwards, Now, there are some popular views of the end times 
that say that the something that has to happen first is like, oh, the, the Antichrist has to come make a treaty with Israel or something like that, a peace treaty with the nations. Or And what they're actually reading is not Revelation. They're reading Daniel 9. They're mm -hmm. not reading the book of Revelation, and they're reading yeah. Daniel 9, and they have an interpretation of Daniel 9 that says, oh, there's a seven-year tribulation period, all that. So we're going to leave that off the, off the table for a second. The question is, is John looking at some future event that these things will happen soon afterwards or is john looking at no the past event of christ his life death resurrection ascent and ascension have happened and now this is happening quickly thereafter and therefore the soon is implying something that's already begun uh, i would argue first off revelation chapter 1 verse 1 it's the revelation of jesus christ this is about jesus christ and the jesus that we meet is of course the resurrected glorified jesus i was dead and i'm alive forevermore and i've got the keys of death and hades that's a huge point in Revelation chapter 1. But let's just go, for example, to Revelation chapter 5. And we'll discuss this in more detail when we get to Revelation chapter 5 in our survey in like 14 years. Or maybe we should say seven years because that's like a biblical exactly. Or three and a half years. Or a thousand. 260 days. All right, we'll do something like that. In Revelation chapter 5 and, uh, and 6, or specifically chapter 5, the, the Father has a scroll in his right hand in chapter 5, verse 1. And then the strong angel says, who's worthy to open the scroll? And John looks and he says, I found no one in heaven on earth or under the earth that was able to open the book or look into it. And I, he says, I began to weep in verse four. And then one of the elders says to him, you know what? Stop weeping. Because the lion from the tribe of Judah has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And he says, then verse six, and I looked and I saw a lamb standing as if it had been slain. There you go. And then it goes on in chapter five, where the, the angelic beings or the, the, the four living creatures and the 24 elders that worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals because you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood. Men from every tribe and nation and people and tongue. That's chapter five, verse nine. The point is that the scroll is worthy of to be opened by Jesus because he died. And of course, he rose again. In other words, the story of the book of Revelation is centered not only on Jesus, chapter 1, verse 1, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, but on Jesus as the victorious lamb. Remember, he's the one who overcame. The lamb has overcome. The lion overcame, and he saw a lamb that was slain. And he overcame because he was slain, and now he's worthy to open the scroll. I think that's kind of the key of, what, of what's going on. So the soon means shortly after something else, and that something else is the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Now, to say that the scroll has not been opened yet because it's awaiting some future time, or that the soon hasn't happened yet because it's awaiting some future time, is to fail to recognize the significance of the fact that the book of Revelation is about Jesus. And you say, well, wait a minute, Rob. Well, it hasn't happened yet. Like, no, it, it's exactly happening, and it's been happening for 2,000 years. The difference is that what people think, well, what hasn't happened yet is the end hasn't come. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say the end's going to come soon. It just simply says these things are going to come soon. And that these things that are going to come soon is including the life of God's people, living out the kingdom of God, carrying forth the gospel message of Jesus, so that at the end of the day, the nations are redeemed, and then God brings the new Jerusalem. Since the nations haven't been redeemed yet, the end hasn't come yet. But it doesn't say the end's going to come soon. It simply says these things are going to come soon. So uh, does that make sense? I don't know if you have any questions or, or thoughts well, about that, Vinny. No, I, 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 I think we should keep going with this because, uh, you know, we've, we've 
talked about this before in the past in terms of looking at the book of Revelation as something that is actually applicable and yes. has yes, uh, yes. meaning to people, not just today in the year 2023 or in 2021 when we, re- we recorded some of those first podcasts or in uh, 1021 or in 521 or in you know 90 AD, but, you know, push it back. There's still a relevance there. And it's not just because we're now waiting for uh, atomic yeah. bombs to happen or something like that, right. which is the popular way of understanding it. So there, there's a meaning there and, and it's something that's applicable. So what you're saying is the way we understand that soon take place, it's not about reading the newspaper. It's not about mm-hmm. figuring out the puzzle and trying to learn more information now that people didn't have any. It's not, it's not watching National Treasurer with Nicolas Cage and figuring out that there's this giant, uh, you know, the Masons have this treasure hidden behind something in Washington, D.C. or whatever. Like, that's not the point of this. The point of it is saying, this actually applies to God's people and it, it actually matters to us today. And there's something yes. to be done. And it's because Jesus started this thing in light of the what, what uh, a term that was helpful for me in seminary that was used a lot was the Christ event. Because yeah. even yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because even in, in our linear Western mindset, we think, okay, it was the cross. And that was the moment that it happened. Oh, it was the resurrection. That was the moment that happened. Right. It was the virgin birth. That was, which one is it? And we want to put the pin in the marker and it's like saying, no, it's this whole thing. You can't have one without the other. Right. Yeah. And you kept, exactly. you kept emphasizing life, death, resurrection, and ascension, which is yes. always the thing that's left out. Right. Yeah. It's, it is that's all of yeah, these yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. The life is often left out too. We just go to yeah. death and resurrection. Exactly. Yeah, or, yeah or, because or you, we make the Christmas. gospel and the kingdom about yeah. Well, we make the gospel and the kingdom about us being saved. Yes. Instead of uh, instead of it being about the kingdom and Jesus' life is an important aspect uh, uh, of the kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move this into how this applies today, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, especially in terms of the concept of the kingdom of God, which yes. is oftentimes a, a left out, neglected aspect of Jesus's theology. Um, it, it's interesting today. I even read on a Facebook post someone was commenting about how. Jesus spoke, it was about the wrath of God. Jesus spoke more about hell than he ever did about going to heaven. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, first off, just missing the topic altogether. But the yeah. entire point of the gospels is proclaiming the kingdom of God, the kingdom of yeah. heaven. <laughs> it's like, yeah, uh, I'm not sure he talked about going to heaven a whole lot, but he sure talked about heaven coming here a whole lot. Exactly. What the kingdom it, of God's all about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So just how we're influenced by uh, just popular sayings or cliches mm-hmm. or whatever. But what does the book of Revelation have to do with? the kingdom of God, which I, does that phrase exist in revelation at all? Kingdom of God. Um, and, and that's something where even when we read Paul, Paul only uses that phrase a couple yeah, times. Only in once. once yeah, in Re- know, Romans, right? Twice. But obviously that's a central theme of his. Uh, okay, even kingdom occurs nine times. Um, but I don't know that kingdom of God occurs in any of those nine. But this is also one of those times where, uh, and I, I emphasize this a lot in my own teaching context at my church, where uh, I have a lot of older folks who went through, you know, Christian uh, church study yeah. in the seventies and eighties yep, where yep. word studies were so important, right? Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. This is one of those instances where if you're doing a word study on kingdom of God, you're never going to pay attention to revelation, even though yeah. that's a key theme there. Are you a member of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan? Right. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. To whom do you give allegiance? Yes. Yeah. would be the way that, that I'll describe it as we move forward. So uh, one six, it talks about the kingdom and not kingdom of God. Uh, chapter one, verse nine, tribulation kingdom. Five, verse 10, you made them to be a kingdom. 11, verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. Okay. Uh, 12, 10, it's still not really the kingdom of God, but the idea, the salvation power and kingdom of our God. Okay. It's not really the kingdom of God, yeah, God but yeah, it's yeah. the kingdom mm-hmm. of our God. Yes. It's, th- it's not the same phrase. 16, verse 10, of course, 
his kingdom was um, the, the kingdom of the beast was was thrown in the darkness. Seventeen verse twelve. Uh, they have not yet. The ten kings have not rece yet received a kingdom. Seventeen seventeen says a kingdom to the beast. They gave their kingdom power and authority to the beast. And seventeen eighteen actually uses the word kingdom, but it's not translated as kingdom in most English translations. They reign over the kings of the earth, so uh, or the kingdoms of the earth. So, yep, kingdom of God, as we might see it in the Gospels, doesn't exist, but the whole thing's about the kingdom of God. So yes. let's, let's be clear. Yeah, good point. So what, what do we do with that? How do we want to talk about the kingdom of God in relation to Revelation uh, and, 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 and look at how the book of Revelation is describing events that have already been set in motion by the Christ event and the, the already inaugurated kingdom of God? Yeah, and I think that's the point, right? This is where this becomes extremely relevant. So we talked about in our episodes on apocalyptic prophecy and epistles or letters mm -hmm. that every one of the genres is speaking to the people of their day. So this is, it's just the nature of, of communication for the most part is that you're concerned about the people of their day. And the reality is that understand the fact that the biblical story is a story from garden to garden, from Gen from Eden to the new Jerusalem. The significant event in that story is that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus that what God intended for humanity to do, Jesus did for us because we were not capable of doing it. God the Son became the man, Jesus Christ, and accomplished for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves, establishing the kingdom of God, dying and rising again, and bringing about the new creation because obviously the Spirit was sent by Jesus. Uh, and it's already begun as a part of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and ascension. And now we live in, as you know, we've called it before, and it's a very popular idea of the already, not yet. We live in the already of the kingdom because we have the spirit, and yet the not yet of the kingdom because it hasn't come in fullness. We still have flesh. We desire sin and corruption and death and disease and destruction. And as well, death hasn't been fully defeated. There's no more mourning, crying, pain, et cetera, because that's all passed away. That hasn't happened yet. So the point of the text then is, well, what do we do in the meantime? And Revelation is addressing a specific crisis that is very relevant to all of us that we'll kind of flush out more as we proceed in which John's exhorting his people to say, you guys have got to not give in and do this because if you give in and do this, you compromise your faith, you compromise your witness. Instead, you need to maintain your witness even though it's going to cost you. And so that's kind of the, the theme there and we want to keep continue to flush that as we go through tonight, I think. Hey everyone, we want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access, but we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. All right, so as we, as we keep mining and trying to focus on the purpose of the book of Revelation, uh, let's bring in some uh, study skills that we've already done in other books uh, that we've gone through, other other gospels, other uh, you know letters. One of the things that we've learned is this idea of inclusios or bookends where there will be this, this verbal repetition of a key phrase or an idea. And this is letting the hearer know, because the majority of the people, the majority of the audiences are hearers. They're not readers. If right, you have the right. one reader 
and then everyone else is hearing it. And so th this is giving you kind of a marker, an ear marker on knowing when something is starting and stopping or it's an emphasis. Uh, so does how does John engage in this in this book in Revelation? Yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah, yeah, they're skilled listeners. I think we might even want to say yeah. and that they're skilled to listen go, oh, I heard that phrase before. So now I hear it again. That means that it's the end of something. And it could be the end of a small section or a large section or of the whole book. So, and for us, if we want to try to like, what's the purpose of the book of Revelation, one of the best places to go is go look, what, what are the, what does he say at the beginning? What does he repeat at the end? Because that's marking the entire beginning and end of the book. So the best place to go is chapter one, verse one. And if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to follow along. We'll put this in the show notes and 22 verse six. And then we will kind of look at verse eight because there's like one word in verse eight, but Revelation one, one says the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place or take place soon. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Revelation 22, verse six says, the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place or what, sorry, what must take place soon. So what you'll notice is of course, God appears twice in verse one, one and, and 22, six. The verb to show occurs in 1, 1 and 22, 6. What must soon take place occurs in 1, 1 and 22, 6. Uh, sending his angel or sent his angel occurs in 1, 1 and 22, 6. And actually John occurs in 1, 1 and actually occurs in 22, verse 8. Hmm. So there's really good clue now. That what, what you have then is that the source of the revelation was God, because obviously God's repeated at the beginning and the end. Hey, what God gave him to show it's revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to Jesus to do what? To show his servants what must soon take place. So there's your first inclusio. And that is that it came from God. Second is that it was given by Jesus to an angel. And then it was given to John. So there's your order of transmit. And that's actually going to be important for like, well, I wouldn't say like really important, but there's going to be some questions that happen later on in the book um, that makes it difficult to figure out, except until we remember that. Oh, yeah, guess what? It's God, Jesus, and angel John. Uh, so, for example, by the way, red letter Bibles have a really mm -hmm. difficult time in the book of Revelation because yep. technically Jesus is the speaker of everything. God gave it to Jesus. And then Jesus gives it to an angel. So is the speaker the angel or is it Jesus? And so that's going to kind of create a problem. So is that the only one that makes sense? It's literally the book end of the book. But are there, are there yeah. more uh, other than that? Yeah, and by the way, one one is the beginning of the prologue, and twenty two mm -hmm. six is the beginning of the epilogue, or the beginning of the introduction, the beginning of the conclusion. So the very first verse of the beginning and the very first verse of the closing are are inclusios. So yeah, there's a lot of other inclusios, especially even in chapter one and chapter twenty two. But maybe one of the more important ones would be chapter one verse three, where it says, "Blessed are those who keep the things that are written in this book, are written in it." And twenty two seven. So one three and twenty two seven. And 22.7 says, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. It seems like John's primary concern then was for his readers, and I like to say readers, or reader, singular, and then hearers, plural. We'll just say it's for his audience, and we can say his readers, it's fine, we all know, know what we mean by that. But John's primary concern was for his readers to remain faithful to Christ and not compromise their faith. It's blessed are the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book means it's actually not going to be easy to do. It's going to be difficult. So don't give in the temptation to compromise. And that temptation to compromise was overwhelming. And so chapter 18, verse four has this really significant imperative or command. And it says, come out of her, my people. Now her is Babylon. And 
we got a long ways to go before we can really discuss, discuss mm -hmm. exactly what Babylon means. But uh, Babylon is the temptation to compromise, at least for this point in time. John's purpose was really actually well captured in a, the subtitle of Scott McKnight's new commentary, Scott McKnight and Machette's new book called Revelation. And the subtitle is A Prophetic Call to Follow Jesus as a Dissident Disciple. Hmm. I'm like, I love that subtitle. Now remember, a, dis a dissident is someone who objects to like a official policy, governmental policy, imperial policy, or something along those lines. So the Oxford uh, Handbook of uh, Book of Revelation also has a, it's a long, uh, a wonderful text also says this, says John seeks to disrupt what he claims to be unacceptable levels of cultural and economic accommodations among maybe even many of Jesus's followers. Hmm. So there you go. John's concerned about his followers compromising their faith. They're called to be dissident disciples. And they're reminded that if you overcome and you keep the words of the prophecy of this book, you're blessed. Chapter one, verse three and 22, verse seven. Last time, I think it was the last time we chatted, you had mentioned how you think the theme, you're arguing that the theme of Revelation is that it's a love story. And I know that, you know, and you've mentioned that in other, like, isn't that your, in your title or your working title? It's the title, yeah, Revelation, a love story. I'm not sure yeah. if I'd say that's the, there's, there's a number of themes that you could point Maybe not out. Maybe a theme, but you're arguing that this is a, this yeah, is a, the, the premise of the story, the story of the book of Revelation is that God's calling us, his people to be faithful to Christ by sacrificially loving our, our neighbors as ourselves and laying down our lives for them. And thus the focus of the story is that it's a love story. Yeah. Which is even funny because just going back to the importance of understanding genre, when we hear, think about, we're, we're both married guys. And if, if our wives- Not to one another. Not, not yeah. to one another, yeah. yes. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> our, our wives are much better people than we are. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, if, if, if I'm going out with Shayla, you're going out with Tony or whatever, there's a, and there's a, a movie and they're like, oh, we want to write a movie about a love story. Yeah. We're immediately like, oh, romantic comedy. Yeah, this exactly. sucks. Like, like, can we get an action movie? Can we get something fun, right? And so we hear love story and immediately there's a genre that's attached mm -hmm. to it. Uh, and it's just funny how we have these preconceived ideas on, that's we hear, point. we hear something and, and we just automatically go there. But my question to you would be most of the details that you're going to include in your commentary, it's not going to be controversial because there's right. so much agreement uh, in terms of the details of revelation, but your, your emphasis on love story, how's that going to be accepted? You're going to get some pushback there. Yeah, I wouldn't say there's so much agreement on all the details, but the general themes the theme, and principles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly there's widespread agreement on on the basic meaning of the book of Revelation and the scholarly community. I don't know. So the question, you know, I'm arguing two things, and I hope to do two things. One, I'm hoping to provide a more refined understanding of the book of Revelation in terms of its structure and how that impacts our understanding of the book uh, itself. And we'll discuss that more as we proceed. And the second thing I'm hoping to add to understanding of the book of Revelation is that it is indeed a love story. And my argument is that the whole books, the whole Bible is a love story. And that we, we forget, I don't know how we forget this, but we do. The, the Bible, the central verse of scripture really is for God to love the world. And the whole idea of Jesus is coming, his incarnation is love. God sent his son out of love. You know, God loved us while we were yet sinners. Christ mm -hmm. died for us. So I do think scholars will agree with what I'm saying, at least generally. Uh, it's not new, but at the same time, I'm also arguing that God is not the one inflicting wrath, at least in the in terms of what we call the seals, trumpets, and bowls, mm -hmm. or what are called the seals, trumpets, and bowls. That's not God inflicting the wrath, and we'll discuss that more as we proceed. That's actually the nations doing what the nations do, and God allowing it to happen, uh, 
And as, as Romans one says, God gave them over to do those things that, you know, which men ought not to do. And they're suffering the consequences of that. When humanity is in power, there's war, bloodshed, famines, and, and death, et cetera. And it affects the poor and the oppressed more than everybody else. I'm arguing that's what humanity does. God's not doing that. But God's allowing that to occur because he loves the nations and he wants them to come to repentance. And so he's giving time. Uh, it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. And so God's like delaying the return of Christ, the end, because he wants the nations to repent. And so he's allowing God's people to continue to, uh, to proclaim the gospel and love and faithfulness. So I had an Old Testament scholar that I was speaking with recently and sharing kind of my thesis of that. And he's like, well, you seem to have like an assumption that this is what the book's about. It's about love. I'm like, well, of course I have an assumption. We all take assumptions mm -hmm. to the text. You can't interpret any part of the text of any text without an assumption. And he's like, you know, I, he's, I, I agree with that. But I believe the point though, is I believe that this assumption actually came from the text. Mm. So it's, it's kind of the scientific process. And by the way, hermeneutics, you know, which we call, you know, how to do interpretation actually means the science of interpretation. Mm -hmm. We are practicing science and yep. science basically is you come up with an assumption or, or a hypothesis and then you test it. And so I began to notice things in the text, like, wait a minute, this isn't God doing this. God's actually doing this. And the, the New Testament's about God's love for humanity, and, and it's God's love that's delaying the second coming of Christ because he desires all men to come to repentance, and it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance, and God's to love the world, and all those verses I just quoted, and I just quoted again. And I realized, well, let me see if I can reread the text in light of this. And, and I found scholars that agreed with this and would agree with that, and we, notable scholars. So I think the assumption comes from the text, and I believe that this is actually what the text is teaching, what it says. But... I also realize that what's happening is something that is not widely agreed upon in scholars of the, of the book of Revelation. They go, well, okay, I can agree that the nations are brought to repentance because of God's love by sending his people to die for the nations, but I still think God's inflicting wrath on the people. And my answer is, I don't think God's inflicting wrath on the people. Now, obviously, the Old Testament scholar that I was speaking with said, hey, Rob, you got an Old Testament deal to deal with because God inflicts wrath, you know, the plagues mm -hmm. in Egypt. You know, this is the way God does things. And I'm like, well, I get that, but that's not my problem. I'm a New Testament guy. That's your problem. You're Old <laughs> you figured yeah. that part out. Uh, and, and I wasn't you know, passing the buck, but I was passing the buck. But David Barr, who I think is a preeminent scholar in the book of Revelation, says it this way. He says, the moral issue I face concerns the overwhelming use of power to coerce obedience. If God, God triumphs over evil only because God has more power than evil, then power, not love or freedom or goodness or truth, is the ultimate value of the universe. In other words, if God's using power and violence to bring, you know, it's justice, and maybe those of you that survived will understand that the wrath that just happened to these guys, and you'll be brought to repentance. Rome did that. Rome crucified people on the outskirts of the city, on the main highway, so that you'll look and see what happened to that guy, and know, I'm not going to do what he did. I better make sure I'm, my, my, my actions are straight. This is the way the, the world works. This isn't the way God works. Jesus himself explicitly said the rulers of the, of the Gentiles lord over those in authority, but not so among you. The first shall be last, and last shall be first. God doesn't use power the way the world uses power. God defines power through the cross by dying on it, not by putting people on it. And so David Barr has later, he says, oh, there is violence. And I think there's, he's not the only one to say this. 
There is violence in the book of Revelation, but it's to be endured, not inflicted. So God's people are suffer violence, but God doesn't inflict violence. So, and, and you know, people can go, well, you know, Jesus told them to take two swords. I'm like, yeah, and that's not what he meant. But the first time Peter used the sword, Jesus sealed the guy's yeah, He rebuked him, like, yeah. <laughs> he's like, put the sword away. That's not what we do. We don't do that, right? And Jesus has a sword in the book of Revelation, but it comes out of his mouth. So I, I think that's what's going on. So, well, And even as I'm hearing you expound on this, and I'm excited to read, you know, those parts of your commentary as well, because I, you know, we, we've had some offline discussions about where you're going and whatnot, but, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm new to hearing into your perspectives as well. Okay. But, I think why the the comments that you're making might strike, especially from a popular audience, a little differently is if you've been told your whole life that the book of mm -hmm. Revelation is about God's judgment on the world and it's it's entirely future, your perspective is just going to seem out of left field yeah. because you're saying like no, it, like you're just taking it to its logical conclusion. The point of the book, which Mo I'm not going to say most scholars, but many scholars acknowledge, yeah. regardless of where they land on the details, they acknowledge, no, this isn't an end of the world type thing. Well, if it's not end of the world, why does this, why, why do the details in there have to be about God pouring his wrath on it, everyone? That's not the point. What's interesting in that is the lay person who goes, oh, I've heard this is about wrath and I'm not sure if I agree with this. My first comment is, wait a second, we've got for God so love the world. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, I got that on my side here. We we tell people that God loves you and, and died for your sin. I mean, the gospel is God's a God of love and he cares for you and he wants you to have eternal life. But then we hold intention. I think it's intention, this idea. Of, and if you don't repent, he's going to inflict all these boils and wrath. And you, know, and you better hope you're not alive at that point in time. I mean, that doesn't make sense to me. So what I see myself having to defend is, hey, God's a God of love and doesn't operate that way. And the person who's arguing with me is defending Oh, God does inflict wrath and he's a mean, you know, he's a mean, I'm not saying that he's a mean, I, I, it's, I, I'm just, I'm portraying it that way. I'm mm -hmm. not saying that they're saying that. I'm just like, well, that's kind of what's happening ultimately uh, is he's sitting up there and doing that. I think the average person in the pew might have an easier time doing, accepting this though, because they're like, Hey, that makes sense. I can share this now with my neighbors where I wasn't going to share the book. of I was going to tell them about Jesus and the gospels, but I wasn't going to tell them about revelation. Cause I like mm -hmm. that would turn them off. But now I can tell them about revelation too. What I think might be more interesting is the scholars and the professors who've taught this for 25, yeah. 30 years, who have to go, well, maybe I've been teaching it wrong. And maybe they're not, are they willing to do that? And I mean, the reality is, you know, we learned about hell in the modern conception of hell from Dante's Inferno. Yeah. I mean, this doesn't go back to the New Testament, guys. This goes back to the mid, you know, Middle Ages. And what we've gotten these at certain points in time, things come along and we grab onto it and we latch onto it. And we build a thesis around it. And then someone comes out and say, hey, maybe that's not the way it is. And I think at least stop and listen, because I think not only is this more um, appealing because it's portraying God as not an evil ogre, but as a God of love, but it fits with the biblical story a whole lot better. So you know, I think we should listen. I'm, I'm just intrigued to see what happens in the scholarly realm as I present this to biblical scholars. And I've got obviously a large swath of uh, scholars in the book of revelation that I'm friends with, and we'll see what happens when they start getting copies of this and what they're, what they're, and, and maybe they'll have some good criticism. Like, oh, you know what? I never thought of that. So mm -hmm. I'm open to that. It's interesting as well, because you're not denying a final judgment. You're, you're no. not, you're not a universalist. We talked about this at the last time. Yes. And so there's probably people listening to this podcast being squirmish. So we could, uh, right. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, we, we, we could that. do the disclaimer again. Um, there is a final judgment. Not everyone's safe. I too, yeah. I totally agree with that. 
Yeah. And, I mean, yeah. you read a Matthew 25 and wh- however that fits into whatever that yeah, fits yeah. into. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. it's obvious they're sheep and the goats. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And the goats go to whatever that might mean, but yes. they're not yeah. sheep. Yeah. 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 And the new and the nations walk by the light of the new Jerusalem doesn't mean everyone from all the nations walk. Yeah. yeah. I'm not denying that at all. I do agree that Jesus comes. I do agree that he steps on the grapes of wrath. That's the, there's a the final judgment and people are judged. But I just don't believe that the seals, trumpets, and bowls are describing what God does. I think they're describing what happens when humanity is in power. And I think we see that playing out. Wars, violence, famines, and and death and bloodshed. Yeah. And this is one of the problems when you theologize, when yeah. that big word you used, hermeneutics, when we're interpreting something, we're trying to figure out what it means, but we're, we're theologizing. We know that God judges. We right. know that there is, you know, not everyone is a member of the kingdom of God. So then we read a book like Revelation and say, okay, this must be what it means when right. that might not be what it means. And so right. we don't want to theologize and insert something that doesn't belong there. Right. Yeah. And I think, let's be honest, Vinny, that we've done that with Jesus too, though, in the oh, Gospels, sure. you know, and we've made it, oh, just get saved and you get to go to heaven when you die. And it's like, no, there's a, yeah, there's this kingdom thing that he's talking about. And he said to be his disciple and to follow yeah. him in the way of cross bearing love. And, uh, oh, uh, you know, right. So I think there's a lot of significance there. We hope you're enjoying the podcast, and we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel, is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. Hey, you know, when we do book studies, we usually begin with the author. Who wrote it? Who is he writing to? When was it written? It's settings, the author's goal, all those sorts of things. This is what you're going to find in an intro to a commentary or something like this. And so we've talked a little bit about this, uh, about revelation and the author's goal tonight, but we, we haven't addressed anything else. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? How how important is that in studying the book of revelation and knowing these sorts of things? Let me begin by reiterating what I think at least some of the purpose of the book is that John's exhorting his people, his, his readers, that Rome and the empire are trying to lead you astray to compromise your faith for the sake of economic um, security, not just economic security, but social security and, and things of that nature also. And John says, no, you need to maintain your faith in Christ, maintain your witness for Christ in the midst of the devil's temptations. We have to flush out what all that means. But that's why he so often says the one who overcomes, one overcomes, one overcomes. There's a lot to be overcome because the devil has put these temptations in front of you to compromise for economic security and things along those lines. And so maintain your faith in Christ. So knowing the author and the date is typically, it can be helpful. I wouldn't say typically, it it can be helpful. When you do a study of the prophets, for example, it's really kind of important to know were the prophets writing before the exile, during the exile, or after the exile? Because the message actually changes. Yeah. Before the exile, like, hey guys, if you don't straighten up, God's gonna bring you and send you in exile. And exile means to be sent out of the country. He's going to carry you away with us this year into the Babylonians. So you get somebody like Isaiah that comes along and says, hey, guys, if you don't straighten up, God's going to send you away. And then you get Ezekiel and Daniel written during the exile. Mm-hmm. And they're like, hey, guys, the reason why we were sent away, you know, our current situation is because we sinned. And it wasn't just your father, your forefathers that sinned. We did, too. And then you get prophets come along later, Hosea and, and others that say, oh, well, guess what? God's going to restore us. And that restoration is going to be great and great. So grand and greater than it was even before you know it's the restoration will be greater than what we had earlier so it's actually kind of significant you have letters like paul's letter to to the church in galatia that's kind of important did he write this before the council in jerusalem or after the council of jerusalem 
uh, what's going on there. And the new Paul's just begun his ministry now. Gentiles are coming to the faith and it's just this kind of this Jewish religion. So what do we do with the Gentiles? Should they have to be circumcised? So the time of Paul's letter, early in his ministry, new converts and all that. Good stuff. I think second Timothy is important that probably Paul's last letter. He's probably in a prison in Rome. He's probably about to die. He's writing to Timothy, a very personal correspondence saying, hey, your grandmother and mother, Lois and Eunice are, are great. And, and Timothy, I want you to carry on the, the faith. And I fought the good fight. And I finished the race and I kept the faith. And, you know, and then, oh, by the way, and come quickly, Timothy, because if you don't, I'll be dead. I think that sets the tone a lot and gives us some, some context there. Otherwise, I think sometimes we make too much of this. So I was teaching a course at a seminary one time and I was the dean. And so my syllabus had to be approved by the president. Mm. right? Because I, I was the dean, so I couldn't approve my own syllabus. And so I was teaching a course in the Gospel of John, and, and the president's like, well, you don't have any discussion of the authorship of the Gospel of John. And I said, I'm not going to talk about it. She goes, well, you have to. I'm like, no, I, here's why I, I don't think I want it. And that's this. At the end of the day, we all believe the Gospel of John is part of the scriptures. And it doesn't matter if John wrote it or some other John wrote it or, who, or somebody else wrote it. The reality is it's in the scriptures and it's not going to change anything. It's still inspired by God. And I only have X amount of hours of lectures, X amount of discussion of the gospel. I want to discuss the content. And the president's like, that makes really good sense. Cool. Go with it. Uh, so the problem with the book of Revelation in terms of the date of its writing, I don't think it matters. Some say the date of Revelation was before 70 and that John's describing Nero's persecution of Christians and the sudden destruction of Rome. I don't think the book of Revelation can be limited to just that. It could be about that, but it's not only about that. So some hold of that view say it's only about that. Not everybody does. So if that's the case, and it's not only about that, then the date doesn't matter because it could be about more. Some say, of course, it's written during the 90s and the persecution under the Emperor Domitian, but we don't have a lot of evidence for that. It doesn't appear to be written during any particular persecution. It appears to be written in a time where persecution is possible, if not imminent, or if not likely, but it might not be happening then. So the setting is unknown. It's just simply uncertain. There's a lot of division among scholars before 70, during the 90s. Some might even say in the early 100s, I, I wouldn't go that far. The second thing is it says it was written by John, but it doesn't tell us who the John is. And actually, I like that because like, okay, now I have to answer the question because I can just call him John all day long and we're good to go. Because there's some conservatives that think, well, if it's John the Apostle, then it's inspired. But if it's not John the Apostle, it's not inspired. It's like, guys, it's in the book of Revelation. It's in the Bible. We're going to keep it. We're not going to throw it out, depending on who the author is. So it doesn't matter. I, I just don't think the issue is that significant. I don't think the date is knowable. And the reason why it's so difficult, and we can get into this in like a long conversation, but we, we won't get into tonight, but you and I can talk later if you're, if you're interested, is the early church had a lot of problems with the book of Revelation. Some, especially in the Eastern churches, they just didn't use it. They didn't like it. They didn't think it belonged in the scriptures. And because of that, the early church fathers don't wrestle with it a whole lot. And some of them do, but not a lot. And so there's not a lot of information about who wrote it and when did he write it there. And what we do have actually doesn't agree because those who liked it and commented on it might even say the apostle John wrote it, da, da, da. But those who didn't like it dismissed the book because it wasn't even written by the apostle John. I mean, that's, that's one of the common ways that they dismissed the book was to say it wasn't even written by the apostle. And I'm, so I'm, cu I'm curious on this. Issues. Yeah. We actually did get an email this week from a listener saying, Hey, yeah, yeah, okay, Rob, cool. you've, you've uh, alluded in uh, you know, a previous conversation that you didn't think it was revelation was not written by John, the evangelist, John, the, you know, disciple, the apostle, that person. Yeah. Um, 
hopefully giving some of your background, they'll understand that this isn't something to hang your hat on the, which John it was. Um, but what do you do with this? Is this something, uh, you know, wh why are you convinced that it's not that, uh, that oh, I never, I am actually surprised by the, I saw the question from, from uh -huh. the listener and thank you for your questions. And we definitely encourage you to continue submitting your questions. And I'd yeah. have to go back and listen to the podcast to see exactly what I said. Cause I don't think I said that it wasn't, I just said, I'm not sure what I said there specifically that, is, that this listener is referring to. Actually, I say in my commentary that I, I have no problem with it being the Apostle John because there's similar. I think there's similarity between Revelation and the Gospel of John. Yeah. I tend to think the Gospel of John was written by the Apostle John, although, as I said, I had a seminary course on this and just didn't discuss the topic of who wrote it. So I'm good with that. So, and I think first, second, and third John, obviously, the problem with those books is that they're so short. Yeah. I think they show a common authorship, but you can't defend that because they're just too short to prove. So I have no problem saying that. It was the Apostle John. That's fine. Um, there's some early church history that says uh, John was exiled to Patmos. That makes sense. It fits. The problem is that the church fathers are in dis dis disagree with that because, especially the Eastern fathers, they didn't like it. In particular, the, uh, the, a man named Eusebius, who's the fourth mm -hmm. century, who wrote a history of the early church. He didn't like it. And he quotes an early church father whose writings no longer exist, Papias, to say that there's two different Johns. And I actually wrote a master's thesis on this. And I'm not sure that's what Eusebius, I'm not sure that that's what Papias was saying, that there were two different Johns. It just depends on how you read it. So there's simply just not enough information from the early. Typically what we do is we say, this book was written by Paul. And we know that for these reasons, mm -hmm. it fits this, it fits with what we know what Paul did write. And the early church attests to it. And we have this early church testimony. We don't have that with, with the book of Revelation because there's enough discrepancy amongst the early church fathers. So one of the things I think that's interesting, and that's maybe one of the major reasons why we have it in our Bibles today, is because one of my favorite people in church history is a man named Athanasius from North, Af North, North African. And he defended the Trinity, and it cost him dearly. And defending the Council of Nicaea was, was significant in defending the Trinity. And he, even though he's an Eastern Church father, and the Eastern Church fathers didn't like the book of Revelation, he put Revelation in his list. And Athanasius's list, in I think it's 367, is the list of the 27 books in the New Testament that we have today. Mm -hmm. So an, an Eastern father accepted it. And of course, the Western Church already accepted the book of Revelation. So I find that, I find that intriguing. So I hope that answers your question that I don't think these things matter in terms of helping us understand the text enough that I would weigh into too deeply, but I don't deny John was the apostle. I just don't know that we can affirm that. Yeah. And wasn't Athanasius exiled like five times? Yeah. Five times. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. For his life, because yes. he was defending what happened at Nicaea yep. as happening from Nicaea. And a couple, I think one or two twice was from Constantine. Yes. Yeah. You know, everyone hails Constantine as this great hero of the, of, of the church. Like, I'm not sure I would go there, but I'm not denying. I'm just like, I'm not sure I would go there. And he exiled Athanasius, who was the champion of orthodoxy. Yes. Because he was baptized. Uh, Constantine was baptized by an Arian. Yes. Yes. On his deathbed. So, yeah. 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 Uh, that would be a fun, it's not Bible and it's church history, but like the council yeah. on AC would actually be a really fun uh, series to do. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, when we finish it, the New Testament. When we finish it. So in the year 2087. 
so we accept revelation as scripture and, and as you said early church fathers wrestled with this but it, it does have a questionable authorship it, and it's uh it's apocalyptic but we don't the, the the question is we don't accept the book of enoch though which is another apocalyptic book obviously we don't know who wrote that you know why why is this the case that we accept one apocalyptic book but not enoch especially when enoch is like quoted in jude uh it's actually yeah. quoted in scripture so that that would be another question that pops up uh, in terms of canonicity a listener sent this question and also so i would simply say that we accept the book of revelation because it was accepted at least enough by enough even justin martyr and irenaeus quote from it and reference it and those are second century church fathers its meaning is extremely centric on centered on Christ, and so now that we have a better understanding of what it is, and we've had that for various points in time throughout the history of the church, no question at all, this book is really about Jesus, and that's what the scriptures are about. Great, it's, it belongs in there. This message is great, uh, and should be in there. Now, as far as Enoch is concerned, that's actually an Old Testament question. Mm-hmm. In other words, this isn't a New Testament question. Enoch was written during the prior to the New Testament time, prior to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And it was never accepted in the in the Old Testament canon. It's in other words, it's a Jewish question. The Jewish world was responsible for what we call the Old Testament before before Christianity came about, and they did not accept it. Now, Enoch was accepted, but not on the same level as what we call what we now call the the canonical books. In other words, mm-hmm. in like the Orthodox Church, for example, Enoch yeah. is still respected and read and used. But it's not on the level of canon as we Protestants go, because we don't accept the canon that kind of include that. So Enoch is a different question because it pre-exists prior to the New Testament. It is quoted in the New Testament because it existed, and that was part of what they read. But Paul quotes pagan philosophers too, and we don't mm-hmm. we don't put those in scripture. So that just because it's quoted doesn't mean it belongs in the text. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the point you made about the Eastern Orthodox accepting that, uh, you know, Protestants are the only ones that don't have these extra what's called apocryphal books. Uh, And even those within the Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox or the Orthodox tradition, they're known as deuterocanonical. Uh, And so they're they're very much respected, but it's it's not seen on the same level as you know, other work. So, but they don't agree with each other either. That's on which very books true. belong. So some Correct. in the Orthodox church yep. are in the, are not in the Catholic Bible and some of the Catholic Bible are not in the Orthodox yep. Bible. So there, there's not even agreement there. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. So good thing us Protestants get everything right. Yeah, totally. Thank God for that. Oof. Yeah. All right. Hey, that's hey. a good one. Cool. So, Hey, uh, we're going to keep, uh, what, what are we going to yeah. do next week? How, how are we going to, are we still going to do background stuff? What are we going to do? Yeah. Gonna I think there's still some more background questions that we need to address. Uh, that we might as well go ahead and address now the questions that keep coming up like you know is the uh, is it supposed to be interpreted literally and what's going mm-hmm. on with numbers and the significance and i think it's gonna be fun you know the significance of numbers is is awesome it's just really really cool and yeah. what does that mean for literal interpretations and so we're going to do a couple more and then i think we might even do an episode on like why i think some of the popular interpretations of the book of revelation are so dangerous mm-hmm. and problematic especially because yes. it detracts us from the wit from the mission that we're supposed to be doing uh, there and we might even do an interview after that yeah, and then we'll start the good. book of revelation and then it, jesus will come in that order uh it, if, if you're really interested in the number thing get rob's book follow the lamb a guide to reading understanding and applying the book of revelation because you have a whole chapter on that yeah. uh, among other many of the other things that we're going to be talking about here so uh, if you're if you're a visual learner if you want to dive deeper great resource to have yeah so and the devotional guide is come is, is live now so as you're listening to this episode on the germantruth.com website is a devotional guide leading you through the book of Revelation five days a week for the next seven weeks. 
you could say the book of Revelation just kind of, and each day it says to read this passage. And then I talk about the text and what I think it means. And then there's some questions and application that you talk about as a group meant to be done as a study as a group. Uh, but I think that'll be very helpful also. And then obviously the podcast and the YouTube page. Fantastic. All right, everyone. Catch you guys next time. I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.